in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hey, it's Gabby Dunn. If you want to listen to Bad With Money without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code MONEY to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to Bad With Money as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows. And your premium subscription supports our show directly too. That's stitcherpremium.com promo code MONEY for a free month of premium listening. Thank you! supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it you're a freak with a dark shameful secret but you're not the only one get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun now your healing has begun it's bad with money with gabby done welcome back to season three of bad with money where the hits just keep on coming but hey at least we're hitting back it feels so good to say welcome back to season three I'm Gabby Dunn, and this week, we've got a little bit of history, a little bit of politics, and a lot of bullshit gender norms. That's right, we're talking about the pay gap. You know, that little thing where white women generally make 80 cents on the dollar compared to men? Cool, right? No matter how much I hate it, society seems to be hell-bent on hewing to some pretty outdated gender norms. And it feels like now more than ever, this is bubbling up to the surface as an issue. 
We've heard more and more people speaking up publicly about sexual harassment in the workplace with the Me Too movement, and usually, that's women being harassed by men. And we've seen women publicly quitting their jobs when they find out they're being paid less than their male colleagues. Kat Sadler, a host for E! News, found out her co-host was making more than double her salary. So as she explained recently to the host of The View, she decided to quit the job she'd had for 12 years. And you, 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 you had the same exact job that he had, right? I mean, exact is subjective, but yes. I mean, we were on the same show E! News as fixtures um, most nights. Yeah. Um, we started at the same time 12 years ago. We had the same, for all intents and purposes, experience, skill set, same public mm -hmm. profile. For me, it was really apples to apples, and that's why uh, I just felt so, so strong in my conviction that mm -hmm. what was happening was an injustice. Right. Then there was the story about the movie starring Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg. When the movie required reshoots, Michelle Williams was paid less than $1,000, while Mark Wahlberg was paid $1.5 million. Also, swear to God, the title of this movie was All the Money in the World. Apparently, discrimination has a very ironic and sick sense of humor. Did I mention the Netflix show The Crown, which pays Claire Foy, the lead actress who literally wears the crown, less than the guy who plays her husband? Which is Matt Smith, by the way, one of the doctors, so no shade to you. It's not just in the entertainment industry, of course. Though in terms of getting the public's attention, it helps that these high-profile stories are getting press. But this pay inequality is happening in basically every industry. In hourly wage jobs, doctors, financial analysts, teachers, literally all over the place, they're paying women less. And they're paying women of color even less. And they're paying trans women even less. Just because. This shit is real, and there are numbers that prove it. In this episode, we're going to talk about those numbers. But first, we're going to dig into how we got here. Why didn't men and women just start out getting paid equally? And why hasn't it evened out in the, you know, decades and decades of women working? Could it possibly have something to do with the perversely sexist, archaic American labor restrictions? Find out after the break. Also, yeah, of course it does. And we're back. And Claire Suddeth, a writer at Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, is about to blow my mind. She's been writing about the pay gap and researching its complicated history for a while now. But she's also working on a special six-part podcast series about the pay gap for Bloomberg Businessweek. So watch out for that if you want more wage gap, which everyone does. What do I mean by that? Anyway, let's let Claire take us back in time to the good old days. There used to be all these laws that barred women from working. They were... In the like late 19th and early 20th century, they were called protective laws. And the idea was that... <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know. This is kind of crazy. And I didn't really know about this until I started looking into it. But they said if women, you know, had husbands who had died or were sick or, you know, horror of horrors, were single as adults <laughs> um, and they had, they had to support themselves. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, we as a society need to put rules in place so that women are protected in the workforce. You know, an example was women couldn't work more than 10 hours in a factory, which actually this is before we had, you know, 40 hour work weeks or the concept of weekends. So now we're like, oh, that sounds amazing. That's necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but they would put these laws in place saying, you know, only 10-hour workdays. You can only work 60 hours a week. One of my favorite ones is in New York City in the 1920s. Women couldn't work past 10 p.m. Okay. Because there there was a moral hazard. Mm. Um, like if you were an elevator operator in a building and you ran a man up to his apartment late at night, you know, <laughs> so, something untoward could happen. Oh, dear. So, yeah, I know. It was very scandalous. Um, and I was never clear if it was, you know, the the female elevator operator coming onto him or if it was protecting her from him. But yeah. either way, so just don't hire a woman past 10 p.m. Can't work in bars. This is like Mike Pence not going to to lunch with female staffers. Like it's, yeah. it's like the same kind of like we have to protect everyone. Exactly. How about you act I mean, like a person? One one of my favorite ones is um the post office had this rule in place that in the dead letter office when, you know, mail would come back and they couldn't deliver it cuz the address was wrong and they would open it before discarding it that only men could work in the dead letter office because a woman might be morally corrupted by something scandalous she opened in a letter. <laughs> so, oh, you know. <laughs> no. Really? Yeah. Oh, so, God. And 
a lot of these laws were before women had the right to vote. Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. you know, these were laws that were put in place because the thought was that, you know, women don't have a say and they can be taken advantage of by, you know, corrupt businesses or or bad employers. So here we're going to legislate these protective measures for them. And sometimes they were a little bit beneficial if you worked in a factory that was all women, you know, maybe it was good that you only worked 10 hour days, but yeah. you know, it, it effectively encouraged employers not to hire women because if, if you do own an apartment building and you do need elevator operators, right. Why are you going to hire a woman? Because she can't work past 10 o'clock at night. If you're your normal nighttime operator gets sick, she can't fill in. So you might as well just cut your losses and only hire men. Yeah. The dead letter thing made me think my mom is a divorce attorney and she just had a case where she had to go through all the guy's phone records. And it was just she was like endless dick pics. It was just (laughs) so many dick pics. Yeah, exactly. So there should be a law in place to protect your mother (laughs) from the dick pics. She can't be a divorce lawyer because she's like, she's like, I've been a divorce lawyer for years and it never used to be like this. And now with cell phones, it's just (laughs) like a nightmare. I know, I know. <laughs> but that's what yeah. it made me think of. But like, also, she's like a 60-year-old woman. She's tough. She can handle it. <laughs> so divining into like what kind of jobs women can, can have and what kind of jobs men can have like in history, is it is this like a type the type of thing where we only value certain types of work or like we only value, you know, the the work that men are doing in terms of payment? You know, like how does value come into it? Yeah, so essentially these laws were in place saying, you know, we think women are supposed to be primarily wives and mothers and okay, yes, fine. Sometimes they have to work, but they can only do certain jobs and they can only hold them at certain times because this is what is appropriate for them. But then what's fascinating is World War One and World War Two happened and suddenly we needed women to work. Mm-hmm. And men needed women to be paid equally because... If you own a factory and all your men go off to war and so you are employing women and you're paying them half of what you had paid men when the men come back, do you want to hire them again? I mean, you're getting really cheap labor. So the government actually mandated that women had to be paid equally as their male counterparts during wartime. But then when the war was over, it was like, oh, well, that was fine. I mean, (laughs) cool. Yeah. Also, let's talk about the the society's view of women doing unpaid work. So, like, the idea that they have to, you know, do their job half the time and then take care of the household and the family and stuff. Like, how does that affect parental leave policies? Like, how is that sort of viewed? I think it's viewed oh. as, like, yeah, that's your job. Who cares? That whole thing of, like, when a, when a dad is watching the kid and it's babysitting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, even now, women... Do, I think in the U.S. it's like twice the amount of housework and or double the amount of childcare as men if they're in a you know a heterosexual relationship essentially, and that is part of the reason why women are more likely to work part time mm-hmm. because that sort of second job, second unpaid job, is on them to do. Right. They oftentimes will drop out of the workforce once they have kids for a few years. Um, They may work shorter hours. And, you know, part of the argument about women making less money is technically women do often work fewer hours than men, but it's really only collectively for like full-time working women, it's only a couple hours a week. But that also means that's probably because they're leaving work to pick up their kids or to do whatever it is that they're doing. It's not like they're just piecing out. Yeah, but it's also like why... I don't know. I Why isn't the dad leaving early to pick up the kid? Like, there's, like, whatever, in terms of straight people. I also think, like, I have a girlfriend, and I'm always like, what are what are we going to do? <laughs> like, what's, yeah. the, what's the MO here? I mean, it, it kind of, talking about the wage gap opens up this idea of, like, restructuring everything. Like, I think it's, I think people who say there isn't a wage gap are looking at it very, in a very straight line. And there's, like, it opens up, like, ideas about paternity leave and like gender roles and what 
uh, fields are friendly to, to women and what fields are like actually toxic and, and terrible to women. And then like what fields we actually value, like teaching and nursing and whatever. I think people don't want to think about it because they're like, they're just like, no, women work less and this is the numbers and blah, blah, blah. And like, they don't want to see it as this like huge systemic shift that needs to happen in like multiple areas. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the like contemporary office culture is relatively new and you know, it cropped up when women were largely at home still and men went to work. And now that that's not really the society that we live in, most women do work. Most men work that, you know, we might want to rethink, you know, what seems like huge traditional, you know, unchanging practices that we have. But they're really not all that old. You know, I mean, none of us are like spinning our own yarn anymore or anything like that. We've decided that that's okay. Well, also, what's interesting is people going like, well, it's a meritocracy. And I'm like, okay, it's a meritocracy. So in your mind, then by saying it's a meritocracy, all men happen to be better (laughs) at their jobs than all women. Like, is that what, like when people are like, well, they just hired, like in Hollywood, you know, where they're like, I just hired a white director because the white director was the best one. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. So out of all directors, it just so happens, because I can see people going, well, now they're going to be like, we're hiring women and they're scrambling to just hire anybody. But that's like a fallacy. That's not what happens. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to pull someone off the street right, and make exactly. her, you know, CEO of Morgan Stanley or something like that. But there's what's called the pipeline problem, which is, you know, when you do get to those high figures, because women tend to not get promoted, even like your first promotion when you mm-hmm. are at your first job, women are still less likely to get promoted than men. It like takes them a little bit longer usually. And it, it just gets worse as you continue on and especially if you have kids um it's a a significant problem so you know if you are looking to hire someone for you know add someone to your board of directors or look for a new ceo you are probably looking at a field of candidates that are largely white men but the idea is not okay next year everyone's going to change and everything's going to be perfect it's more like well what about those first and second level promotions where in five years and 10 years, those people will be at those higher levels and they'll be in the running. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's like it's playing the long game rather than the short game. So a lot of the current imbalance in pay stems from regulations, rules, bills, and, you know, just generally paternalistic, moralistic reasoning we face throughout our history. And I think about this a lot. Growing up Jewish, I keep running into these things. For example, there's the fact that women would have to wear a head covering to protect their modesty, you know, so that men wouldn't get the wrong idea. And it was always explained to me that it was for my own safety. But that's not a satisfying reason to have to change my behavior. Here's Claire again with a brilliant idea. Remember how men came up with that great law that women couldn't work past 10 p.m. as elevator operators? Just in case something untoward were to happen. Possibly they could have just legislated that past 10 p.m. men have to take the stairs. I don't know. Oh, my God. You just destroyed me. Oh, my God. So, you know, it was always this burden placed on women. And I think, you know, what you're hearing with the Me Too movement and stuff is that women don't want that burden placed on them anymore. They want it to be placed on men. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, don't assault someone right how about that how about that <laughs> take the stairs <laughs> right don't you assault your you elevator might, operator if you think you might assault your elevator operator do take the stairs exactly oh my god i want to just be like ah! okay sorry just like 12 minutes of me screeching okay sometimes even if this is a tiny portion of the time the regulations are designed to fix the damage that's been done don't get too excited there aren't any laws on the books that would mandate men take the stairs after 10 p.m. But wouldn't that be cool? Just kidding. Just kidding. I would never want that. However, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was the first piece of legislation Obama signed when he first became president in 2009. It's named for a woman who found out she was making less than her male colleagues, but her case didn't make it through the Supreme Court because she had been underpaid for decades. And the statute of limitations was only for 30 days. Now, with the Lilly Ledbetter Act, the 30 days resets with every paycheck, making it easier for people to sue their employers for unfair pay. 
That was back when we had a president who was interested in fixing problems as opposed to pouring gasoline on fires. So let's fast forward to the working world we're living in now. Trump is not signing Equal Pay Acts. He's actually freezing them and trying to make them go away. And our neighbors over in the UK are reckoning with new regulations they've passed, which require companies over a certain size to report their salary data broken down by pay level. And that data had to be published by this month. One of these companies was Condé Nast in the UK, which despite having more women than men on payroll at every level, women were still being paid almost 40% less than men. And this wasn't a fluke. Almost 80% of the UK employers who have reported their salary data found that male employees earn more than their female employees. If you're a woman in the workplace, this is probably not surprising at all. But it is pretty shocking to see the numbers aired out like that in public. So what does it mean that a large chunk of our population in the U.S. is making 20 cents less for every dollar a man makes? It doesn't just mean that women feel undervalued or that men get to drive nicer cars. I've got Andrea Johnson, the Senior Counsel for State Policy at the National Women's Law Center, here to help lay it all out. I think it's easy for some people, unfortunately, to kind of write that off of, oh, it's a few cents. (laughs) And we do a lot of calculations of the wage gap, you know, slicing and dicing it in all the different ways to try to really drive home what this means for women and for their families. And so many women are primary or co-breadwinners in families. Uh, You know, this isn't pin money. This is money to support families. And that has been true for women of color for a very long time. Um, So making sure (laughs) to make that clear that this, you know, isn't like a new trend. But, you know, increasingly women across the board are, are really supporting families. And so you're hurting their families and their ability to, you know, feed their kids. And we did a few years ago a lifetime wage gap number. So looking at the wage gap over a 40-year career. And I think for the overall number, so the 80 cents number, the losses due to the wage gap uh, amount to um, a little over $400,000 over a 40-year career. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, What's really crazy is when you look at um, numbers, you know, especially in in many states for Latina women, it's upwards, it's over a million dollars that they're losing to the wage gap. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot. And, you know, it's a, a number that compounds over your career and it affects your retirement. And so just trying to add some urgency, you know, to finding solutions to close the wage gap by using these these numbers um, is really important. And, you know, on a more like an annual basis, what it means in terms of the, the amount you lose in a year due, due to the wage gap would pay for a three-month supply of groceries, three months child care payments, three months rent. Yeah, I mean, and commuting and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I always think about, you know, the fact that it's a single parent house, maybe a single parent household or, uh, you know, my girlfriend and I having two female incomes, which uh, is shitty. Or like my mom was the breadwinner of our house. So like there's all these things that aren't these like 1950s gender roles of, of the husband making, you know, all the money. And even so, like, why wouldn't you want women to make more money to put back into the economy? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. So so what do you make of all this press around women discovering their own pay inequality in real time and then quitting because of it, like Kat Sadler or all the, the hubbub that was made about Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg? Is this like a viable way to protest because it's super public? And I always think about like, you know, the the people who wa- who walked out of working at McDonald's and did this big protest for minimum wage. And then it's like, you know, you have now you have no income or the teachers in West Virginia. And then it's like very public. And then people are like, oh, this person's a troublemaker. You know, is that like the best tool or what do you think are the other tools at these people's disposal or even the disposal of people, you know, like me or who are privileged and have the means to do something about it? Yeah, I mean, I think the Me Too movement has shown how powerful it can be for people to share their stories. I mean, immensely powerful. It's incredibly scary. And, you know, a lot of people are putting their livelihoods on the line by doing so. And so, you know, it's not like we want to say to everybody, go and do this. Like, this is what we all have to do. It's like important to recognize the the risks that people take and, and putting their career on the line, their job or their ability to put food on the table that night in sharing these stories. You know, retaliation is illegal, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen and that doesn't, you know, help you right away. But it is great when women that do have more power and privilege um, are able to share their stories. And I think that makes others feel comfortable coming forward and, and approaching their employer. And, and I think we're in a moment now where employers recognize, like, they have to do something about this. They 
should have been before already. You know, there's lots of laws in the books about sexual harassment and other forms of discrimination. But just the the increased accountability that comes with all these people sharing their stories and um, has led to greater accountability. And I, I do think that's really important. It could also be on the bosses and the employers and the hiring managers to make sure that they're not breaking any laws. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I'm a big fan of finding ways to change processes change you know the processes that employers are using to set pay as opposed to trying to debias minds which is really difficult and so let's find different mechanisms that make sure that the processes for setting pay are truly neutral there are so many practices that employers engage in that they're like oh this is just how it's always been done this is totally fine this has no like disparate impact on on women or people of color but when you really dig in you realize that in fact no this is creating wage gaps or perpetuating them so asking in the job hiring process for prior salary, you know, what did you make in your last job or like your last five jobs? That is just a common practice that a lot of employers have used for a long time. And they, they think it's just it's fine that, you know, this number, it's a number. It must be neutral. But your prior salary is often not a neut- neutral indicator. Your prior employer could have discriminated against you, even if they didn't have, you know, malicious intent in setting your pay implicit bias might have come in, or you're in one of those female-dominated professions where you're being paid less simply because it's women's work. Um, it's it's devalued because it's seen as women's work. And so you're looking to move into maybe a higher paying position, and you're basically being condemned to carry that low wage throughout your career because of that practice uh, of relying on prior salary. So I think employers really need to look at their books regularly, but also just look at their processes. You know, are they using prior salary? Are they using negotiations? Yeah, it always feels like a trick when they're like, okay, what's the, what's your number? And I'm always, I when I was younger, and I would always just be like, uh, I hate this. So mm-hmm. what, what happens when, when women enter male fields? And how did this switch? Because wasn't, I mean, I saw it in figures. Wasn't computer science like a female-dominated field in the past? It's so crazy how all these things get switched. Yeah, there is a study showing that when women move into a male-dominated field, that that brings wages down, and then the opposite happens. So, and you know, the example you gave of computers and as in hidden figures, you know, previously female-dominated profession that now is is male-dominated, and wages have gone up there. So, I mean, that I think is just such a salient point to understand that it's not just choices. It's it's all of these stereotypes that we have as society and structures that we have set up that um, make it so we're valuing work because it's women doing them. So that is discrimination. It takes a different form and maybe there's less culpability on the individual level. But as a society, that's something we need to acknowledge and address and, you know, look at ways to raise pay in those professions. And so when we talk about equal pay, we talk a lot about the minimum wage and raising the minimum wage as a way to close the wage gaps. And so many women are in minimum wage jobs. Well, raising the minimum wage would be great. So how does race enter the equation? I always think about like these white women who fight for like the wage gap, but then, you know, I don't know. I don't want to like stereotype, but get their nails done at largely Vietnamese or Korean, you know, spas and then uh, and then like, you know, hire largely Latinx people to clean their homes. Like it's this very weird thing of like who does what jobs. And then the the wage gap is even larger for women of color. I think also like it's not a simplistic thing of like I'm going to pay black people less, but it is like another kind of who does who's expected to do what jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the we always try to lead with the sort of intersectional story about the wage gap because just saying 80 right. cents on the dollar really does not convey the whole story by any means. And yeah, for mm-hmm. black women it's 63 cents on the dollar paid to white non-Hispanic Whoa. men. Um, Latinas is 54 cents and and uh, native women it is 57 cents. So I mean those are like a like wow. half of what um, you know, white men are making, and those are really astounding numbers. And yeah, the intersection of both race and gender combined is what is creating those numbers. And when we're working on equal pay laws, we always want to make sure that we're not just talking about sex, but also about race, because somebody mm-hmm. might have stronger evidence that the they're being paid less based on their race versus their sex, and and it's you know it's a complicated story and. 
just allowing uh, somebody to bring a claim based on one identity is not sufficient. So we always make sure that, you know, sex and race and, and other factors, I mean, disability also, sex and disability combined creates a whole, right. whole dynamic there and sexual orientation. And uh, it's really important to tell mm-hmm. these stories and to lead with them. Those are the numbers we need to be leading with and, and centering as we try to make policy change. We'll be back in just a minute with more slightly hopeful news. So don't give up yet. Welcome back. So since Andrea works on state policy, I wanted to know what was going on there. I mean, when I asked what was going on in the federal government, this is how she described it. An all-out assault on women, um, yeah, queer, trans people, immigrants, everything, um, all of the above. Hooboy. But she says there are some good things happening at the state level. Thinking of moving to a new place soon? Here's what's cooking around the U.S. I know last year almost every state had some sort of equal pay bill, and I think we're getting close to that number now. State legislative sessions are are happening right now, and so there's just a major appetite in the states to do something. So a number of states, I think nearly 20 states, have bills prohibiting the use of salary history in in the hiring process, which is really great, really important. A simple fix, not a silver bullet, but really important. A number of states are just strengthening the equal pay laws that they already have to make it easier to bring a claim. Uh, It's really easy to get your pay discrimination lawsuit thrown out of court for a bunch of of technicalities, um, and there's a lot of loopholes in current laws, and so states are moving to close those. And I think Washington State just this past week passed um, an equal pay bill strengthening its current laws. Then this pay data piece and transparency piece is the other big effort. And New Jersey has an equal pay bill right now. And I was actually up there last Monday testifying in support of it. And it would strengthen its equal pay laws, close those loopholes, but also includes a a pay data reporting piece. So requiring public contractors to report about their pay data. And that is super exciting. And I know New Jersey really wants to lead, be a leader on equal pay. The, The new governor, his first executive order was an equal pay related order. And so I'm hopeful there that that some change will be made and, and that they'll step up and kind of close some of these holes created by the Trump administration. Um, and we're working on uh, exciting legislation in a few states. One that comes to mind is Maryland, where they have right now a bill that would um, prohibit employers from relying on salary history, but also require them to provide the salary range for a position upon request. So let's say they don't ask for salary history. That's good. That's the first step. But then they're going to ask you, what are your salary expectations or desired salary? And we want to make sure that people can have information about what the you know general ballpark is for that position going into that negotiation because studies show that women tend to ask for less in negotiation, you know, even compared to their equally qualified male counterparts. Studies also show that when people have more information about the context of the negotiation, so how much, you know, what the salary range is, what benefits might be available, that having that information helps to narrow wage gaps. So the Maryland bill is, you know, directly responding to that and making sure we get that information on the front end. Because if you're just going to say, what's your salary expectation, that might just continue to perpetuate wage gaps. But yeah, things like Glassdoor are really helpful. But we think it's most helpful to have the employer, you know, say what the salary range is for the position you're being hired for, since that's the most accurate information. So what what's up in Iceland? Why are they better than us? <laughs> Other than their cool hot springs. (laughs) Definitely. Those are definitely great. So, yeah, Iceland is doing something, you know, really exciting, basically requiring employers to prove that they are paying people fairly and to, you know, show their math, show their books and prove on a regular basis that they don't have any wage gaps. And I should just step back and say that, you know, none of these laws, these equal pay laws that we have here or in other countries say that you can't pay men and women different wages It's just you need to have a justification for it. So that might be your seniority system or a system that, you know, measures quantity or quality of production, something like that. But, you know, if there isn't a justification, then that is unlawful if they're doing, you know, similar work. But Iceland uh, has a very rigorous system that requires you to prove on the front end that you are paying people equally and have a justification for any disparity that, that exists. So we are a long ways from that. So we can dream about moving to Iceland all we want. 
hot springs, great sweaters, black sand beaches. But I want to get to something that kept coming up in the interviews I was doing. Something that could happen anywhere, regardless of bills or laws. That thing is salary transparency. I think what we need to be focusing on is transparency. So more transparency around pay. So there are a whole bunch of different tools we can use to close the wage gap, and we need all of them. We need to, you know, to strengthen our laws. We can go to court and bring a claim. We need to make sure that employers aren't setting salary based on your prior salary, your salary history, and thus perpetuating gaps. But I think, you know, what we're really starting to see now that what's going to make a real difference is just more transparency around pay. Now, like even I'll admit this idea terrifies me. You'll hear more of my gut reaction to it in just a minute, but I had to learn more about what it would be like to work in an environment where everyone knows everyone else's salary. Not many companies do this. Whole Foods was an early adopter of salary transparency, and then there's transparency in the public sector, like the military or the federal government. And we should note that wage gaps are also smaller in the public sector. But anyway, we decided to get a hold of Dane Atkinson, CEO of a company called SumAll, which was founded as a salary transparent workplace. We'll get to him after the break. And we're back. Dane is about to make me very uncomfortable. So you started SumAll five years ago. Why did you decide to create a company that made everyone's salary public? Let's get into that. (laughs) That's a good topic. Um, And it it certainly sounds better in hindsight than it did when we first decided to do it. (laughs) We'd seen a lot of the evil that's come out of uh, keeping that all secret. Um, There have been a lot of painful moments in our team and for myself where I've sat across human beings and seen them cry as they realized, you know, their salary was half of what someone else's salary was. Yeah. So we thought that transparency would block a lot of those evils. um, And we learned it does and and does a lot more than that through the years after. So what is it like working in a place with salary transparency and how has that evolved since you guys first started with this idea? We have changed the format. So when we first started, uh, we basically had a a giant drive. Anyone could look up any other employees. um, But we really abused our team by any new hire. We would send out a notice to the entire company being like, hey, we just hired Jane. She's making $80,000 and she does this. Um, We found that to be uh, taxing for the team. The team basically said, I don't want to go through this think every weekend when we hire somebody else. Um, So they would check on it down the road, just make sure that things weren't falling way off the charts. And for the most part, people just like knowing that a company was accountable. And if they had to look, they could. My like skin is crawling and I'm so for this. I think this is like (laughs) a great idea. I had a friend, we worked together like eight years ago and he was on the show and he was talking about how he would get so frustrated that he wanted to like Martin Luther, like put his pay stub up on his door of his (laughs) office. And I was like, I wish you had done that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then as you're talking, my like stomach is lurching. I don't know why. Yeah, I think there, it's, it attaches to us in a, in a strange way. Like you think of it just conceptually. Oh, it's your salary. It's what you're doing in your work. But somehow people really get linked. Their identity, their id is somewhat valued by that salary. So we've seen a lot of you know, that same sort of conversational resistance. Like, oh, my God, ooh, I, I wouldn't want anyone to know. Like it just it feels strange. Um, But on the flip side of that, once you realize that it's not that big of a deal, once people see everyone's salary, it it drops back into the background, right? And it allows you to have extremely clear conversations that you can't normally do, right? So when you're unhappy with someone's salary or you're unhappy with someone's performance, you could include that as part of the talk and not just be like, yeah, I don't know if Jim's really doing what Jim should be doing, not having any idea, you know, what's actually happening for Jim. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just pictured walking around an office and everyone's face is just replaced by a number. Like I would just see numbers, <laughs> like a weird anxiety dream. You, What do you mean? You mean that like if you're like, well, I'm working more than this person, it gives you leverage to negotiate? Is that what you're talking about? Well, so it actually creates a different kind of environment. So when you know what everybody makes, you can sort of understand what the company is valuing and you can have an open conversation saying, you know, why is Martha making more than everybody? Like, what Mm -hmm. is she doing? And then the company can at least honestly say, well, you know, she's on the weekends running this conference circuit or she has this access that we need desperately or something else. So you Mm -hmm. you don't have this hidden thing. And and what I've always found is you see like such a better balance between people and and this sort of team alignment that happens that's, that's unique to a transparent organization where everyone now understands what everybody else makes. They're more conscious of the time they're wasting from their fellow team members. They're defensive of their fellow team members. I don't know how many times I've had people come in and say, listen, we really think that Jill's not making enough. Like she's, yeah. she's doing a great job, but she's just not speaking up for herself. She's kind of putting into the team as much as we are and, and we just feel bad about it. And um, that has just never happened in something I've built before. And it's great to see you know, this desire for there to be equality to a degree in in pay. 
That's so interesting. And I think it brings for, to the forefront any kind of like gender or racial or sexuality discrimination, I imagine. Yeah, it does. It, it, um, it makes it inescapable, right? So I think that there's lots of problems with the way people are trying to create uh, corrections and sort of the audit process. Um, mm-hmm. I think that an actual transparent environment makes it an impossible thing to hide from. And even when you try to be a best actor, like this is the thing that was surprising to us. So we're transparent. So obviously we're going to be equal pay. We're going to take care of everybody correctly. We still don't. And what we realized was it's, it's a larger issue than just poor managers. You know, in, in this scenario, I was trying not to be evil like I had in the past. I was trying to do right. <laughs> and I was still finding out like, God, you're right. You know, Jane underestimated her career on her resume and Bill overestimated his career. And we're paying them the same amount. And that's wrong because she's adding way more to the team. Mm-hmm. How does it change the way that you hire? Uh, so we're lucky that we're on the forefront of that curve. So when we hire, when a candidate we're actually interested in, the people in the interview will express their salaries to the candidate. Um, oh, that's interesting. Which is, it, it dramatically changes the uh, salary negotiation. Um, but for us, it's been a real big advantage because it's the only time that happens to them, right? They're doing 30 interviews and they come meet with us and I'm saying, well, you know, I'm making 200000 and Todd over here is making 170 and we're thinking about you at 150. How does it affect who you can and can't hire when salaries are transparent? Uh, It's a great question. So often companies will do things that are bad for the team that are good for the company. So, you know, we're going to hire Tim because Tim has access to the White House and we're going to pay him all the money in the world. And he has access for like three weeks and then he's sitting in your newsroom making three times the amount of money anyone else is. And you're like, Christ, how do we get Tim out? Or what do we do? Like we have this weird nuclear bomb walking around the office. And I can swear to you, in the other companies I've built, I literally see people walking around being like, oh my God, that's such a mistake. What have I done? But it got me the, you know, I was able to finance a company or get a partnership or whatever else because I went for and you know, reach that didn't make sense. And in a transparent company, you just can't. You can go to your team and you can say, you know what, we really need this access to the White House, but they'll never let you go three times in the salary. They'll let you go 20, 30%. They just, they just won't do it. So you, you do lose a bit of that, that feathering. From the hiring standpoint, I actually think it's, it's an amazing pre-qualifier. And this might just be a bias of the kind of employees that we like, but the people who most resist this are the ones that really like to negotiate um, or who really you know, are trying to stretch their own value and feel that's part of their process. But we found, or are afraid of being able to sort of really drive and create value. Like they're afraid that someone's going to look around and say, you just aren't making the kind of contribution to the company that your salary dictates. And people who jump in on this are the people who just like simple, clean you know, methods. They, they don't want to actually haggle. They just want to do their job. They just want to get things done. They want to know that they're not being abused. They want to know that they're being treated you know, fairly. And mm-hmm. this is a place where that suddenly makes sense to them. Is there a thing of like people believing that they're underpaid if they're not or like being like, oh, my chosen job is worth less? Like when I worked at BuzzFeed, it was always so I mean, we didn't have salary transparency, obviously, but we knew uh, that the people in the branded department who did less creative, quote unquote, work were paid way more than us on the creative side. And so it was like, oh, they purport to be a creative company, but they value the money and the commercial aspect more. Is that like a thing that could be a problem or is it more like, oh, well, now you know what is being valued more and you can say something about it or you can... Most people believe perceptionally in, in opaque companies that they're underpaid. Something in the neighborhood 68% always think they're underpaid, which obviously, according to math, is not possible. Um, but if you look at the way different categories of skill are appreciated in different market demands, it is a real stressor. And it, again, I think it's a stressor that's better to have a conversation around versus just pretending doesn't exist. So in our world, a, a big point of, of contention was we built a sales team. So we brought in you know 20 sales folks, and we suddenly realized that we had these folks graduating from a state school who had spent four years surfing, who were just amazing salespeople, making the same amount of money that literally MIT grads with two degrees were making. And that, that was crazy. And, and it certainly didn't make the, uh, the grads feel, uh, you know, graduate degree people feel particularly good about their use of time. But it at least allowed us to discuss that as an aspect of the industry and not an aspect of our choice, right? Like it wasn't as if we wanted to compensate them less. It was just that the market demand was so high for those kind of rainmakers mm-hmm. that we were paying a lot and they were structured in a way that that made sense for them. Them and we were structured in a way that makes sense for you guys. And, and because everybody got to understand how the company came to that rationalization and, that and why we made those choices, it didn't make it feel evil. 
Um, mm-hmm. Where normally you'd end up having, you know, some braggiocious sales guy running around with his new Rolex being like, yeah, I just bought this on some ball. And everybody be like, how the <laughs> hell did that happen? And, you know, all of a sudden three engineers disappear next week. Um, right. So the other thing is that people criticize is like downsides for the company's bottom line. What's the argument against that? Uh, definitely not. Definitely not. So I, I think that people always think that you're going to be only moving upwards in the way that the salary compensation works. It's not true. So you end up negotiating better because it's hard to compete against a, a sort of a, an open flat system. So you get strong offers in the front end. Uh, you do correct downwards. So when people have over-exaggerated their careers, the, their peer pressure is a great method to push people into a right compensation versus it being a manager being like, you know what, this didn't work out. You got to leave. Our conversations are, you know what, we overestimated what you could do for the company. We hope you get there, but you need to be in a rung below because you're actually doing much more of the work of Phil than you're doing the work of Todd, so to speak. So you get downward conversation there. You also, your churn metrics drop. Um, churn is basically what we call regrettable loss. It's when someone says, I'm out of here and I want to go to somewhere other, um, higher paying or better job. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, I think a lot of companies underestimate the cost of churn of people leaving, and especially people you want to keep. And if you factor that in, then it's, it's a very profitable method is to be sort of transparent because you, you reduce churn greatly. You also, there's a ton of other side effects. The political behavior of your team changes, the career evolution of your team changes because people now have much clearer pathing. In other words, you know, they may say, I'm enjoying this creative role I have at BuzzFeed, but I'm actually going to switch into brand because I can make more money and, and this mm-hmm. is how I'm going to be more valuable there. And they sort of align towards what makes them most successful and what makes the company more successful really quickly. So say you don't have the power to change the way your company treats salary transparency. What can you do at like different levels of management or being a worker or whatever other than my friend posting his salary on his door. But maybe that's the answer. <laughs> well, actually, that, that might be much closer to the answer than you think. So it was illegal to ask what your you know, what? A fellow mate sitting around the table. Was that changed? Thankfully, as long as our present current administration doesn't throw that out, you can actually sit around a, a coffee table and say, what are you making? Or you can post your salary on your door. Uh, um, and a company cannot punish you for that. So I, I think that that would be a very bold move to do internally and obviously take a great amount of strength. But I think a more open conversation about what you're making and, and, and how you feel about that is probably really healthy. Mm-hmm. Doing that even in small groups inside of organizations or even across friend groups, right? Like it, it, it's, it still boggles my mind how people, when compensation is such a big part of how you are able to provide for your family and build a life, that when you sit down with your friends on a weekend, you aren't all trading numbers. Because mm-hmm. maybe one of your friends found out that the market just desperately wants people to, you know, do one thing, which you could also do. So why wouldn't you want to know that they're making twice what you're making? But you still feel so you, you have all that, you know, personal aspect to it that you don't do it. So what problems does salary transparency not solve? Because I assume it doesn't solve the problem around, like, devaluing traditional women's work or, like, you know, maybe there are discriminatory practices and who gets what position. So like if you're even if you're getting equal pay for your title, it doesn't mean sometimes you're not like going above and beyond what that title describes. Even when we're transparent, we find that that minority groups in particular and women in a sort of secondary secondary function just don't uh, aggressively negotiate for themselves. And it's more the team around them that are asking to take better care of those employees which is insane, um, and that's a much bigger issue is just how we value our own work and, ha- and how we sort of put that forward. That sort of resume thing I also think is mind-boggling, and, and um, a friend of ours is, is sort of into negotiating styles between women. She works at uh, Harvard and had this great study where it showed that women will underestimate their career hugely, so they'll take a six-month stint and make it not exist in their resume, or more likely a, a three-, four-month stint, where... Um, another market of people will take a four-month stint and make it a year on their resume. <laughs> so it, it's just there's there's the, all these base level how we value our work and how we talk about it and how we fight for ourselves that aren't mm-hmm. fixed by transparency, um, but they're highlighted for sure. Uh, it's impossible when you're looking at a breakout across a team to suddenly say, oh, my God, you know, I, I may think I'm doing great, but why is you know, Mark just not making anything or more likely, you know, why is Deshonda doing such great work and she's not getting any any value for it? Could every company do this if they wanted to? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't and it doesn't like there's no industry where it's like, oh, maybe this wouldn't work. Uh, I think unwinding the mistakes companies made is very hard. So uh, I don't think the companies can just switch the the lever and say, here's everybody's salaries and expect (laughs) to have an epically bad week. Uh, but if you were to start something out or if you were to put the attention into it, there's no model that would be preclusive of this. I think that 
it, it creates just a better environment where people are working to better the company and be valued correctly by the company by their effort versus by some abstraction. Like, you know what? I think if I do the laundry for Dane, he'll give me a raise. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you see everyone's salary, you know that's not what's driving compensation. I guess I'm just picturing the when the burn book goes viral in Mean Girls and everyone just fights in the hallway. <laughs> and then and then after that, the school is better. Does that make sense? Yep, that is a, a good analogy. <laughs> so friends here we are again at the end of the road and you may be wondering where to go from here i know it's not going to be easy especially when the best intentions are still not enough not even close but there are a few ways we can stop feeling so hopeless about all of this first Make yourself aware of what bills and proposals are in the works in your own state. Who's proposing them and how can you show your support? Next, think about your own position in the workplace. Do you make hiring decisions? Maybe you should revisit your own processes to make sure you aren't accidentally or even purposefully being evil. Are you negotiating harder with women and other marginalized people? Are you using previous salaries to influence how you'll pay a new employee? Are you just randomly deciding that cis dudes should be paid more? Cool, maybe don't do that. But if you aren't the CEO of a company and you can't make big decisions like turning your business salary transparent, you can still watch out for your colleagues. Speak out on their behalf when you can and try to stick together. You could also try sharing your salary with your friends. That sounds terrifying, I know. But like Dane said, it might help someone make a more informed career decision or help them realize they should advocate for a raise. And don't forget, this pay gap is bad for everyone, regardless of their gender. So let's work together to fix it. I also want to leave you with this clip from Claire Suddeth. You'll have senators, representatives come out and give lip service to this. It's, it's something that's really easy to say that you're against. Women and men should be paid equally. Women and men should have equal opportunity. There should be equal pay for equal work. But it's a lot harder to solve than that. And, you know, even well-intentioned companies and individuals seem to find themselves inadvertently contributing to the to the pay gap. I mean, even if if you're a man married to a woman and she's doing most of the housework and she also has a full-time job, you've got to ask yourself, why? Why is she the one doing most of the work? Why is she the one doing most of the childcare? You know, it's not just something that we can legislate away. That said, I guess what do we want? You know, are we okay with this type of society where women tend to have their careers progress more slowly than men and tend to um, have to drop out of the workforce? Or do we want something that allows people to reach their full potential in their chosen careers, regardless of whether they're a woman or a man? for listening to bad with money if you like the show please rate and review us in itunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are also bad with money that this is the show for them and also tell your friends who make more than their white cis male colleagues who are you we love you we're part of the panoply network our producers are Lindsay crowdowell and sam dingman and we're edited by chiquita pascal thanks also to cameron drews andy bowers is panoply's chief content officer original music for our show was composed by zach sherwin mike kaplan and jack dolgen our theme song is performed by sam barbera and our show art is by cameron glavin and dan blondell I am, as always, Gabby Dunn. See you next week.